Welcome to Cornerstone, where we are seeing lives changed through the truth of God's Word and the love of God's people. We're glad you've joined us. Today, we'll be hearing from our lead pastor, Daniel Ostendorf. Listen in and be encouraged as we spend some time in God's Word together. But what a great morning of celebrating the truth that not only has Jesus come, but then as we celebrate, he came for a purpose. He came for a purpose to save us as the light of the world. Well, today, as I mentioned, we are kicking off a new, uh, I'm sorry, turn this on, a new series. We're going to do a series in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew. And so as you came in today, you would have seen copies of the Gospel of Matthew. These are our gifts to you. We did it for the first and second Peter series. If you didn't grab one, feel free to grab one on the way out. A couple of things. We just think it's helpful. I know it's helpful for me to be able to jot down the notes next to the text, to follow with the text. Um, So we want this to be a resource for you. Um, If you do grab one, I just ask, would you put your name in the front? Because we're now going to have 150 of these floating around the church that all look the same. Uh, So please put your name, maybe a contact number or email, uh, just so if you misplace it, we know who it belongs to. If you have a child who loves God's Word, then say yes if they ask if they can have one. However, if you have a child like my children who just love free things, and they see everybody else taking it, and you're like, they're going to take it, They're going to scribble in it one day, and they will not use it for the rest of the time. If you could just protect that for someone else, uh, I would appreciate that. That would be great. Let's our our stewardship go a little farther in those, uh, but we do hope they will be a blessing to you. Now, you may see at the top here, it says New Sermon Series for 2024-2025, and you may have wanted to start heading for the door. Two years in a gospel. Well, let me put you at ease. We're not going to spend every Sunday for the next two years in this gospel. But we are going to spend a chunk of the next year and a half in this gospel with different breaks in between. We're going to study Philippians. We're going to be in the Psalms. We're going to do an Advent study. We're going to study what it means to to proclaim the gospel to our Muslim neighbors. So we're going to do a lot of other things the next year and a half. But one of the things we will do is walk through the gospel of Matthew together. And I'm looking forward to next Easter. So Easter 2025, we will be at the resurrection account in Matthew. And we'll wrap up the book together there. So I'm looking forward to that together. Well, you know what? We love genealogies uh, as long as they're our own. We actually, probably most of us, find genealogies pretty boring. In fact, perhaps you're like me if I'm in a moment of just confessing my uh, ability to get bored. When I open a book of the Bible and I get to a genealogy and I start reading these names that are hard to pronounce, and I can't remember half of who they are, let's be honest, I probably can't remember a fourth of who they are, um, I start to zone out a little bit. Maybe I'm not the only one. There's something about when in school I had to learn the the seven wives of Henry VIII, it was hard to keep them straight. Or the Huguenots or the the Plantagenet, you know, all these different dynasties, right? If it's not our own genealogy, we start to tune it out. We, We don't seem to care about it as much. But when it is our own genealogy, when it's our own story, we get very excited. And uh, did you know that over 35 million people have had their DNA tested in order to know where they come from, in order to know their family story? Ancestry.com is probably one of the leading services in this. And and the the industry-wide is several billion dollars. Ancestry.com alone had a billion dollars in revenue last year from people trying to figure out who am I related to, where have I come from, and that sort of thing. The Ancestry.com processes over 1 billion searches a month 
for who's my great uncle, who's my great aunt, am I somehow related to, uh, I don't know, George Washington, right? More than 3 million people pay every month to be subscribed to Ancestry.com, and there are over 131 million family trees built on Ancestry.com. The question that arises, why are people so fascinated? Why are we spending tons of money and time trying to figure out our ancestry? I think there's lots of reasons, but I'll, I'll give you two that jump to mind. I think one, just curiosity. Oh, where have I come from? Who am I related to? What's, what's the story behind me? When King Charles was crowned the new king of England or of uh, the, British Empire, or the British Commonwealth uh, a few years ago, uh, the searches for uh, relationships to the, the royal family skyrocketed. Everyone wanted to know, am I related to this new king? Especially in Canada and the UK. I think the other reason we are curious about our genealogies and our family stories is we sometimes want to find our identity in those stories. You know, if you want to find out if you are part Native American, if you are at least a quarter Native American blood, you can apply for tribal membership and be a part of a Native American tribe. A few years ago, when Ireland, actually I guess it's been over a decade now, when Ireland joined the, the EU, if you could trace your ancestry back to Ireland, you could become an EU citizen with just some simple paperwork. So I had lots of friends who did that. Man, sweet, I get EU scholarships now, I can travel the EU freely. Um, and so people uh, pursued their ancestry because it gave them something. But we've seen some not so healthy uses of ancestry. One just has to think about slavery in our own country or the Holocaust of the Jews. And the Nazis' misguided, misunderstood um, pursuit of Aryan purity. But you know what? I, I read a sweet story recently about that whole story where the Nazis were so focused on are you Jewish and if so, you're other and we'll kill you. You know what's been happening now with that whole story? Those who survived the Holocaust are using DNA tests and their ancestry to find survivors of the Holocaust they're related to that they never realized were there. I think it's a sweet way that that story is being redeemed a bit at least. Well, as we kick off this story in Matthew, you're going to open up the very first page of Matthew to Matthew 1, and you're going to get a genealogy. And our tendency is to tune out these genealogies, to tune out these family trees, to say, oh, I don't know these names. I don't remember who they are. This means nothing to me. Let me jump to the interesting part. My hope today is to break that for you, to show you how incredibly powerful and rich this genealogy is. Because the truth is, as Matthew was writing to his original readers to say, here is Jesus who fulfills all these promises, he's also saying to us, as your king, you are part of this family tree. And so this is our family tree. It's the story that God has grafted us into. Now, you might have this question, and I got it several times this week, so I felt like it was probably worth addressing. Um, I had two brother-in-laws, actually. I love my brother-in-laws. They're like, Daniel, so you did Malachi, you're Matthew. Are you just preaching through the Bible? Like, is it the easy, like, put the easy, push the easy button? No, that's not the purpose. The purpose, if you remember, of Malachi and Ezra and Nehemiah was to help build some anticipation, some, some angst in us, some frustration of, uh, the Messiah hasn't come, life is difficult, how do I remain faithful when I'm... Uh, when God is delaying fulfilling his promises. I wanted us to open Matthew and, and see that God fulfills his promises in amazing ways. And Matthew, more than any other gospel, focuses on the fulfillment of those promises. So if Matthew had been the third gospel, we still would have jumped to Matthew. So, lest someone tells you, is your pastor just preaching through the Bible? No, we're not preaching through the Bible. There is a purpose and a rhyme and a reason. 
Well, let's do a really quick overview of who Matthew is. I'll kind of unpack this and put more details in over the coming months. But here we go. Matthew was one of the 12 disciples. Uh, he was also known as Levi. So if you see the name Levi in other gospels, it, Matthew and Levi are the same person, we believe. He was a tax collector. And so in the Roman world, when you were a tax collector, you contracted with the Roman government. They said, all right, we need this much taxes from you and from your local area. But if you take anything over that, that's your pay. It's kind of your commission, as it were. And so as a tax collector, not only was he taking money for the Roman government, he was taking money for his own income. And he grew quite wealthy. And the only way you grow quite wealthy as a tax collector in the ancient Roman Empire is by taking a good bit from your own people if you're Jewish, as Matthew was. Now, we know he's quite wealthy because when he comes to follow Jesus, he actually hosts this big party for Jesus and his disciples and sinners and other tax collectors and, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders call Jesus out for it. How could you have a dinner party with that tax collector, let alone all the other sinners among you? Matthew has been the undisputed author of this gospel since the second century. You're not going to open the book and find a thing that says, thus the gospel of Matthew, according to Matthew, right? You're not going to find that. But since the second century, there really hasn't been debate. This is Matthew. Matthew's gospel is the longest, the richest, the most detailed gospel of all the gospels. But what's interesting is Matthew doesn't feature much in his own gospel. We don't know much about him other than what I've already told you. Matthew's primary audience was the Jews who had rejected him, telling them about the Savior who had welcomed him and redeemed him and offer the same thing to his fellow Jews. His heart and his goal is to say, this Jesus is the promise that God made to us as his people. We believe that Matthew wrote somewhere between 45 and 70 AD, so within 20 to 40 years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Those who would have heard this gospel, those who would have read it, would have been alive at the time of Christ. And so there was some accountability that what he wrote would be true. Now, for those of you who maybe don't know a whole lot why we have four Gospels, you might be like, well, why do we have four? Why don't we just have one? None of the Gospel writers are trying to give us a full account of Jesus' life. They all have a purpose of their telling. And so they leave things out. They, they put things together in different, slightly different ways to help us see the truths they're wanting to get across. And so we have four Gospels because we have four perspectives on the same things with different, slightly different purposes, but all to glorify God. Now, there are three Gospels, and Gospel is just the word for good news. So we have three, uh, three writers who say, hey, here's the good news of Jesus Christ, and I want to tell it in a way that I think will be compelling, will answer the questions of our day, and show you the truth of Jesus. But there are three that are very similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call them the synoptic Gospels, synoptic, same optics, same view. These three Gospel writers overlap in quite a few of their stories. And so over the course of the next couple of years, you'll, we'll dip into Mark, we'll dip into Luke as we compare what's going on to highlight what Matthew's doing for us. Well, as I said, each Gospel writer has their focus, and here's Matthew's primary focus throughout his Gospel. His primary focus is to show uh, his people, the, the people of God, the Jews, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. The word plerao, a Greek word for fulfillment, is used 16 times in Matthew, only tied by Acts at 16 times, but other than that, the most used times of the word in the Bible. In addition to that, we're going to get lots of instances of this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, or so it was written, or so the prophets said. And so there are over 25 direct connections that Matthew gives us between the Old Testament promises and Word of God and Jesus Christ. 
because of this, uh, the Old Testament is lifted high in Matthew as being something we need to know. Uh, my daughter Aubrey and I were reading through the chronological, I'm looking down here because she's sitting here studying. We were reading through the chronological New Testament for a while, and I would quiz her, like, okay, hey, that, right, that reading tonight quoted the Old Testament. Who do you think it is? And she, by the end of it, she knew it was Matthew. And almost any time uh, an Old Testament prophecy or, or, or passage is mentioned, Matthew's a pretty good guess. So if you've got a quiz coming up soon, there's your, there's your answer. All right, so not only is he looking at the fulfillment of what God's done, he, he's doing it with two specific purposes. To show us that Jesus is the promised king, that is the promised Messiah, the, the promised anointed one. And unless you get cornered in the marketplace and someone says, Jesus wasn't the only Messiah, let me explain what Messiah means. All right, so we get Christ, it's this Greek word. It's a Greek word for a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is Messiah. Messiah simply means anointed one. Now, throughout the Old Testament, this is a title used for lots of people. The patriarchs are called Messiah, are, are, are anointed ones. The kings in the Old Testament are anointed ones. So there is truth. There are other people used, uh, uh, described as Messiah throughout the Scripture. But throughout Scripture, God's prophecies indicate to it there is a specific Messiah coming. And so uh, eventually, through the Old Testament into the king's period and the exile and post-exile, Messiah comes to refer to that one that one anointed king who will come, who will fulfill all the promises in ways we can't even imagine. You know, Messiah is even used to describe the Persian king, Cyrus the Great. But what we're looking at and what, my, what Matthew wants us to see is that there is one Messiah that God promised, and that anointed one is Jesus Christ. Uh, Pastor David Poston writes this about Matthew's gospel and Matthew's focus on the king. He says, while Luke includes the shepherds, it's Matthew who records the worship of the child by wise men from the east. This theme of Jesus as king of the Jews is also seen in his passion, as it's Matthew that records the crown of thorns, the scepter, and the title given to Jesus, king of the Jews. Pawson notes that all of these were meant to mock Jesus. So he said he was king of the Jews, but now he's crucified. And Matthew lifts high those elements to say he is the king that you've crucified. Well, this king has come, and, and Matthew's second focus is then, what does the king's kingdom look like? What is his rule like? What does he expect of his followers? And so, picking up in chapter 5, we get five sections of teaching throughout Matthew. We get more teaching in Matthew than anywhere else. So, we get the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. You've heard it said, but I say to you. In chapter 13, Jesus explicitly says, the kingdom of heaven is like... In chapter 23, in a really harsh passage, he says, that gives us the seven woes. Woe to you Pharisees and scribes. And he unpacks what the kingdom of God should be like. So Matthew's focus is God's promises fulfilled in Christ, that Christ is the promised king, and that following him means living according to his kingdom. Now today, we're going to start with the first two chapters this month in December, and we're going to look at the birth of the king. We're going to start with the beginning, and then in January, we're actually going to skip to the end. We're going to look at the Great Commission in January. We're going to go to Matthew 28. And we're going to use these two bookends to frame the entire study. Matthew does something very specific in, one and two, in chapters 1 and 2. He does something very intentional in Matthew 28. We're going to watch that happen, and then in February, we're going to come back and pick up in 3 and 4, which is just the establishment of his ministry. Then we're going to take a break in March, April, and May. In June, we'll come back and we'll hit Sermon on the Mount and the beginning of Christ's teachings. So just so you kind of know what to expect in the coming months. My prayer for our time as we study Matthew is this. I pray that each one of us will have a greater confidence in who Jesus is as the Messiah 
as the king, as our king. That we would have greater clarity in what it means to follow him as his people. And that in growing in greater confidence than those two things, we might grow more faithful as disciples and more equipped to share the good news of the gospel and disciple others in following the faithful, steadfast king. What we're going to do today is we're going to read through the passage and then we'll stop to pray. So if you've got your Bible in front of you, it'll also be on the screen. Let's turn to Matthew 1.1 and see what we're uh, looking at this morning. So we're going to read through Matthew 17. I'm oh, sorry, Matthew uh, 1, 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nishan, and Nishan the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. At the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of, Eli, uh, of uh, Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Did you have that impulse to want to fall asleep halfway through those names because they don't mean much to us? Hopefully today they'll mean a whole lot more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to open your word together. Thank you for the gift of Matthew's gospel. Lord, for not only inspiring him to write this gospel, but then preserving it for us that we could open it this morning. Father, my prayer is that as we study these first 17 verses, we would see your glory and the great news of Jesus coming, the fulfillment of so many promises and the work of your hand. Holy Spirit, be with us now and speak through your word to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, the first 17 verses, packed with names, uh, is packed with significance that Matthew's original readers would have understood and that we, I hope, will understand better. Here are just three important truths. These aren't all of them, but here are three important truths that come out of these first 17 verses. Matthew is wanting to make very clear Jesus Christ is the, the Messiah, the promised king. He is declaring that Jesus is king of both the Jew and the Gentile, that Jesus' coming is good news for all, including the Jews, but those that aren't. And that Matthew declares by the end of this genealogy, this is not the work of men. This is not a people who got it all right. This is the sovereign work of God, working through broken and rebellious and sinful people to fulfill his promises. Well, the book starts with perhaps the most powerful verse 
uh, in the, uh, for the first couple of chapters. It doesn't seem like much at first blush. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But there's a couple of unique things here. Uh, in Hebrew culture, and if you look back to the Old Testament, this is true. This should say the book of the genealogy of Abraham, the father of David, the father of Jesus. In Hebrew culture, you always named a genealogy by who it starts with. And so an original reader would have heard this or read it and be like, wait, Matthew, what are you doing? No, 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 you start with Abraham. But Matthew's intentionally saying, no, 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 we don't start with Abraham because Jesus is the point. Jesus is the focus here. With these very first words, Matthew tells his reader, my gospel is all about Jesus Christ, the son of David the king, the son of Abraham, who was, the, who, who was given the promise to be a blessing to all people. And what happens really is the son of David and the son of Abraham are two blessings, two promises of God that Matthew is pointing to. Let's take a look at them. Uh, Matthew starts with David rather than Abraham uh, as the first one. He says, hey, you are a son of David. Well, what does that mean? David in 2 Samuel 7 was given a promise by God and God told David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The psalmist then goes on to celebrate this and says, you have said, I, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne to all generations. This promise of God to David and to his people is a promise that will be heralded and held fast to by God's people. In fact, when Jesus marches into Jerusalem on that triumph, first triumphal day, that first um, Palm Sunday, they celebrate him as king because they think he's coming to fulfill this promise, to sit on the throne of Jerusalem, kick the Romans out, and be this king that God promised. So Matthew is telling them from the very beginning, Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. He is this king in the line of David who will reign forever. But not only will he reign forever, he will be a blessing to all people. Matthew also points us here to Abraham's promise in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Matthew begins his gospel by saying, Jesus Christ is the king who was promised, who will be a blessing to all people. If I was going to ask you to commit one verse to memory this month as we study Matthew 1 and 2, it would be this verse. There is so much in this verse about Jesus, the promised Messiah, the fulfillment of God's promises to David, the blessing to all people. So I want to encourage us. I want to challenge us as a, as a church. Let's commit Matthew 1.1 to memory this month. It won't take much, just intentionality in a little bit of time. Well, Matthew then dives into three genealogies, three sections of what he calls groups of 14, Abraham to David, David to Jeconiah, Jeconiah to Jesus Christ. Now, if you are an engineer in, this, in our midst, you have counted the number of names. You say, these aren't three generations of 14. Matthew didn't know how to count. Well, let's be honest. If he's meticulous Matthew, he's a tax collector. He's very good at counting. Now, Matthew's doing something very intentional here, and despite our desire to, to get all the, the things right, Matthew had a different purpose in his three groups of 14. If you count David twice, for example, you get three groups of 14. The scholars have wrestled with, what, what's David doing here? Why three groups of 14? And there's lots of debate. 
I'll just mention two. One is called gematria. It's the taking of the Hebrew letters that also represented numbers. And the three Hebrew letters that represent the name David equal 14. So maybe there's something there. Other scholars have argued, well, uh, seven is the perfect number, so two sevens is, is God's completion, God's plan. Or if you break up the generations, there's kind of six groups within these three groups, and then maybe Matthew's writing to the seventh group. All of that could be, and I don't, I'm not, I don't want to demean wrestling with those questions. But what I do want to say is there is an assessment of this passage that all scholars agree on. The reason that Matthew did three groups of 14 was to make it something you could remember. If he had listed out every single generation in this list, one, it would be much longer, and you'd never remember it. Matthew's purpose wasn't to give us a complete record of Jesus' genealogy, just like his purpose wasn't to give us a complete retelling of Jesus' life. He gives his readers enough information so they can make the connections in the chain. He gives them enough links that they can remember the 14 names in each, group of th- each of the three groups to see how God fulfilled his promises to Abraham, to David, and then to the people after exile. Matthew cared about his people hearing this, knowing what God had done, and remembering it to tell someone else. So let's dive into the first one. Well, in the intro, Matthew began with Jesus Christ, uh, the son of David. He starts with Abraham. He does start chronologically. I'm not going to read these names again. It's tricky enough for me up here. But what I do want you to do is take a pen or a pencil and circle these names. Judah, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, David the king. There's a lot going on in this, but these ones stand out of important, of, of uh, uh, extra significance and importance. Judah, uh, son of Jacob, was promised that it was going to be in his line that the ruler would come. When we celebrate uh, uh, Jesus as the, the lion from the tribe of Judah in, in Revelations, that's pointing back to the promise to Judah. And you know what? That promise goes all the way back to Genesis 49, when God promised Judah that there would be a ruler from his line. And so in Judah, we get the reminder that God's promises have been there all along, and God's completing those promises. What we get next is very unique and interesting. We get the name of three ladies, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. You need to know that if you were a Hebrew or a Jew in the first century, this would jump off the page. This would smack you over the head. You're like, wait, those aren't supposed to be there. Why are they there? For a couple of different reasons, they're not supposed to be there. You don't put women in ancient Hebrew genealogies. You pass down the line of men. That's what's important for your lineage, not the ladies. Furthermore, all three of these ladies aren't Jews. They're Gentiles, and as we'll see in a second, one of them wasn't even allowed to worship in Jerusalem because of who she was. Might Matthew be telling us something specific through these three ladies? Might he be catching the attention of his readers to say, my God works differently than we expect? In case you don't remember who they are, let me remind you of these, who these three ladies are. Tamar was a, a Gentile woman who married Judah's eldest son. That son then died, and by uh, a culture, the, the other son should have married her to give her a line and had, and had children. They all refused. Then they all die, and her father-in-law should have helped her, should have come alongside her. He refuses. So Tamar one night disguises herself, sleeps with her father-in-law, gets pregnant, and gives birth to two twins. Perez, and Zerah. What's interesting is when Judah is called out for this in Scripture, what does he say of Tamar? She is more righteous than I. Matthew's readers would have known that. 
here is a woman outside our line who is more righteous than Judah. Rahab, you might remember, was a prostitute in Jericho. The, the, the spies had gone into the city and she, she hides the spies away and then she gets them over the, the wall. And when Jericho falls, Rahab and her family are spared. But Rahab isn't a Jew. Rahab is a Gentile who lived in Jericho. Ruth. Ruth, you might think, oh yeah, she's a Jew. No, actually, she was a Moabite, married to a Jewish son who died. And, and when uh, her mother-in-law's sons both died, Naomi, her mother-in-law, says, okay, I'm going to head back to my people. But Ruth, you stay with your people, that they might take care of you and you might have another family. And what does Ruth say? No, I'm coming with you. She comes with Naomi to a, a people who are not her own. And you know what, according to Deuteronomy 23, as a Moabite, she was not allowed to enter the Lord's assembly. She could not worship in Jerusalem with her mother-in-law and with the people. And yet Matthew here proclaims God worked through a Moabite, a faithful Moabite who loved Naomi well. And then the last person that we get in this list, sorry, the last person we get in this list is the only person given a title. The only person, all three of these genealogies given a title is David the king. Matthew wants you to see a bullseye right on that. He wants you not to miss it. This is about David the king and one who's in the line of David the king. But you know what's interesting? This is not the family tree we would sit down and write. And if we were a Jew in the first century, this is not the family tree we would give you. We would take out those ladies. We would take out the ugly parts. But what does Matthew do in the very next part of verse 6? He mentions David's greatest downfall one of his greatest sins. But we'll look at that in a second. Let's first talk about what Matthew's doing in this first section. In this first section, Matthew's wanting to make clear that Jesus is the king of both the Jew and the Gentile. That God has brought about his promises through both Jew and Gentile. Though his people were to be a light to the world, and they failed to do that in many ways, they rebelled, they were sinful, they were kicked down to exile because of their disobedience, God's good news still stood. And as he had promised to, to Abraham that it would be good news for all people, here in this first ge genealogy, this first group, God shows us that he has brought good news for all people through all people. Or at least through those outside of his line. That's probably a better way to put that. The good news of Jesus is that he is the king of both the Jew and the Gentile. Church, this should be very encouraging for us because if somebody were to write the genealogy of God's people, we wouldn't be on it if we went according to ancient Hebrew custom. But we are on it. We are Ruth and Tamar and Rahab. We are grafted into God's family. We who are Gentiles have become part of the story of God because he has brought us in, reconciled us through Christ. He is the king of both Jew and Gentile. He is our king. Well, in the second group in the genealogy, I want you to circle a few here. Let's circle the wife of Uriah. Let's circle Asaph, Amos, and then Jeconiah. The wife of Uriah. It's the only mention in this entire genealogy where the wife's name isn't mentioned. Matthew, I believe, did it to highlight exactly why she's not mentioned. If you know the story of David, right? Of course, the wife of Uriah is Bathsheba. And David not only committed adultery with her when he should have been off to war, he then went to great lengths to kill Uriah. Matthew wants his readers and us to not miss the point David, our great king, was also the one who failed terribly. Matthew doesn't give us David's greatest accomplishments, 
There's no comment here of David was the father of Solomon who conquered so much land. He was the one who built the city of Jerusalem. He was the one who did this and this. No, he was the one who slept with Bathsheba and killed Uriah. Something humbling here for a Hebrew or a Jew to read this story and be reminded. But what an encouragement to us that God still used David despite his sin. That God is still sovereign. All right, well, what about Asaph and Amos? Was Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat? Now, if you flip back to your Old Testament, you're going to figure out, no, no, he wasn't actually. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Asa was a king who started off well, but then turned to evil in his pride. Who was Asaph? Asaph was the writer of 12 of our Psalms from Psalm 70 up through 83 or so. What about Amos? Was Amos the father of Josiah? No, he wasn't. Amon was the father of Josiah, and Amon was a wicked king. Who was Amos? He was a prophet who prophesied to the people of God. Now, there is some debate among scholars about whether these are scribal errors, and so if you have like the New King James Version, you're going to see Asa and Amon. There is debate about what, if these are typos from scribes or if these are intentional. Having read some of the scholarship and the arguments, I land on meticulous Matthew is intentional. The earliest manuscripts have Asaph and Amos, and I think for a reason. Because not only is Jesus the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham and the fulfillment of the promises to David, he is the fulfillment of the hopes of the Psalms and the prophecies of the prophets. He is also the God who keeps his word but works in powerful ways. Jeconiah was the final ruler in Judah. He was the last of the royal kings who ruled over the land before being exiled by Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon. Never again would there be a king sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. Jeconiah was the last one. And through Jeremiah, God gives Jeconiah a curse. Never again will a descendant in your bloodline sit on the throne of Jerusalem. Now, your ears should have popped at that because you're like, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. Matthew's whole point here, you told us, is to show us how Jesus is the legitimate king. But if Jesus is the legitimate king through Jeconiah, isn't that countering God's word? If God said no king would ever sit on the throne, but you're telling me Jesus is his line and he sits on the throne, who's right? That's what Hebrews would have thought. That's what the Jews would have thought when they read this. Like, Jeconiah? Wait, hold on, no, he's the one who shouldn't have a king. Why is he in this list? for a very important reason we'll look at in a second. But before we do, here I think is one of the takeaways from this group. That list is not a list of good kings. That list is not a list of people who got it all right. That list is a proclamation of a sovereign God who worked through exile and post-exile, who worked through people who didn't do it right to bring about his promises. I think this group in the genealogy is a proclamation of see our great God who fulfills his promises to his people despite his people's rebellion and division and sin. Church, what an encouragement for us. We look around our world and we can grow discouraged. The, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Things are, are falling apart. God, how could you ever do anything good? God, are you asleep at the wheel? And I think the, the original audience would have read this section of the genealogy and said, that was bad king, bad king. The kingdom divided, the kingdom exiled. Man, this was just terrible. This was a terrible time in our history. And I think they would have heard Matthew say, yes, it was terrible, but God was good. And he was still in control.
Our family has a favorite news program that's kind of targeted at kids, and, and it's 10 minutes every day, and at the end of World News Watch, they always say this, whatever the news, the purpose of the Lord will stand. I think that's much of what Matthew's communicating in this group. Whatever happens, whatever goes on, the purpose of the Lord will stand. All right, now we go on to our third group. This one's much easier if you're circling in your hands, tired from circling and writing. You're just going to highlight that last line. Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. There is more interesting tidbits in here, but nothing that pops for the original reader like this final line. Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, in our English translation, this gets tricky, and I, 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 I was not good at English. I still am not. I still struggle to write well. But in English, we might say, okay, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Who's the of whom about? Is that Mary or is that Joseph? Is he born of Joseph? Is he born of Mary? What is unclear to us is super clear in the Greek. Meticulous Matthew strikes again. Of whom? is a Greek word, haste. It's a feminine pronoun. It can only refer to a female. It can never refer to a male in Greek language. So it's very specific here that Joseph, the husband of Mary, to Mary Jesus was born. The only one in this entire list of genealogies where it's the mother to whom they're born. So Mary is highlighted. It's also the only one in this genealogy that the father is not the one to whom the child was born. Matthew's readers would have read this and said, wait, of whom Jesus was born? No, no, that should be the father. He was born of the father. And Matthew's saying, no, he wasn't. Joseph had no part in this birth. And so what Matthew's doing is laying out a, a legal case. Jesus is legally descended from Abraham through David through Jeconiah. But remember the curse of Jeconiah? He is not a blood descendant of Jeconiah. God fulfilled his promises, kept his word. The other word here that's important is ganao. It's the word to give birth. Of the 40 times that word is mentioned in the, word, the 16 verses we just looked at, they're all active. The, the father was, was giving birth to or, or it was born through the father, right? These active, like the father was involved in, in, in the coming of a son. In this case, it's passive. Mary is not giving birth to Jesus. Joseph is not giving birth to Jesus. Someone is working through Mary to bring Jesus into the world. It's an incredibly powerful statement of the virgin birth of a God who was in control, of a God who brought Christ into the world through Mary, not through his father. And so these three genealogies would have proclaimed to the original writers, and I say, I would argue, proclaimed to us today three incredible truths. That God has fulfilled his promised blessing through, to Abraham through Jesus to be a blessing to all people. That God has given us his promised king through the line of David. And that all of this was fulfilled by the hand of God, not by the hand of a person. There's a lot of richness there. And I hope now you can open up Matthew 1 and be like, wow, there's a lot there that already begins to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Well, lest we miss it, Matthew wants to hit this home for us. So in verse 17, Matthew says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. 
There is no dispute about what Matthew's gospel is going to be about. His opening words were the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. His claim in, in verse 16 was uh, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. And here in verse 17, to the Christ. Matthew's whole claim here is that this is the story of the anointed one, of God's promised fulfillment of his king. This genealogy is not about David. It's not about Abraham. It's not even about Mary. This genealogy is about Jesus, the promised Messiah, the promised king. That Jesus is a fulfillment of God's promises made to generation upon generation upon generation, to Abraham and David. That Jesus is the blessing uh, that was promised to Abraham, a blessing to all people, that he is the king of the Jew and the Gentile alike. And that even through the brokenness and the sin and, and the rebellion and, uh, present in the line of Abraham and David, God's hand was sovereignly at work, bringing about his promises. You see, the promise wasn't ours to fulfill. The promise was God's, and he fulfilled it. So when we read that first verse over the Christmas holiday, when we commit it to memory, I hope it helps root us deeply in the good news of the gospel. That the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the promised anointed king, who fulfilled the promises of David, reigns eternal and forever, and is a blessing to all people. As we wrap up, you might have this, sorry, we'll get to community in a second. As we wrap up, I didn't want to leave us with just information and not know how to apply it. So let me give us a few ways I think we could apply it and then we'll wrap up. I want to encourage you this Christmas and this week to consider how these first 17 verses of Matthew's gospel either encourage you or challenge you. Do they deepen your confidence in God's plan and sovereignty in the good news of Jesus Christ? Or do you find them actually challenging your skepticism? Of is God really faithful? And does he really do what he said he'll do? How might these verses encourage you to trust the Lord, whether it's for the first time placing your faith in Jesus, the anointed promised one, or strengthening your confidence in your Savior? So that's for you. My second application would be, who else do you need to share this truth with? Who do you need to share this with? Your kids, your spouse, a, a family friend, a, a neighbor, a, a coworker. Who has God put in your life that needs to hear of God's promises and how they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Might, might a conversation, just to play a little hypothetical here, uh, of these verses open up a conversation for the gospel? Uh, what if you were to say to a friend, Hey, I know you're skeptical of the Bible. I know you kind of tune out. Can I show you something that in the first blush is going to look to you like a really boring history class, but in reality proclaims the greatest news ever? And church, isn't that the heart of it all? That we celebrate Christmas because of the news that a Savior was coming. Because why did Jesus come? He came not just to fulfill those promises, though he did those things. He came to make a way to the Father. His purpose was to die in our place, that we would be redeemed and given new life. Jesus didn't come just to check boxes and say, look, I'm God, I can do those things I promised. No, he came to restore us to right relationship with our Heavenly Father. God's fulfillment of his promises were for a divine purpose, alluded back to in Malachi 3, that God would come to us himself and call us to return to himself. 
You know, it's interesting, even as Jesus Christ, the Christ part points us to the promised king, Jesus means the Lord saves. So Jesus Christ points us to both the truth of a king who has come, but a savior who has come as well. And he came to save us. So today we're going to take communion and we're going to remember that Jesus came not just to be born to fulfill those promises, but to die in our place. To take upon himself all the sins that separate us from God, our own rebellion, to place in us new life and a new spirit. To establish a new covenant with us that we might hold fast to God's promise. Thanks again for spending some time with us today. For further information about today's podcast or our church in general, please visit us at cornerstonecbc.org. That's cornerstonecbc.org. Thanks. See you next time.